This morning we're, uh, we're picking back up in our studies in Luke's Gospel and um, uh, what a contrast with two weeks ago. Talk about back down to earth with a bump. Uh, two weeks ago we were exploring the transfiguration and Jesus is up on the mountain with Peter and James and John and Moses and Elijah appear to him and they have this wonderful conversation about uh, talking to Jesus about his departure, about his going to Jerusalem to die. The word departure is the same word that is uh, also translated exodus. Elijah and Moses talk to Jesus about his exodus. That's what he's going to the cross to achieve is our exodus from uh, uh, slavery to sin to the freedom of eternal life. It's no accident that that's the word that's used because immediately you hear the word exodus, you think about Moses crossing the Red Sea and leading the people of God out of slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. Well, Jesus delivers the second exodus, the greater exodus, our delivery from, from slavery to sin and death to freedom in eternal life and freedom with Jesus. So Jesus has had this uh, conversation with Moses and Elijah, Peter, James and John have seen Jesus in all his divine glory. Remember, the curtain is just lifted and we see Jesus as he truly is. We see Jesus as we will one day encounter him. One day we will see Jesus in all his glorious splendour. Remember they see him, his appearance, his face changed, his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, almost too glorious to look at. That's how they see him. And now they come back down the mountain, there's a large crowd and there's a row. There's a squabble going on. A man in the crowd is called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. Uh, he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams, uh, scarcely ever seen him. I begged your disciples to drive it out and they couldn't. What a contrast. I bet Peter, James and John wanted to run straight back up the mountain. Uh, just note that Luke uh, specifies that, again that this is an only child. Luke often do, does this. Remember with... Um, uh, Jairus's daughter earlier on in uh, back in chapter eight, Luke makes a point of saying that Jairus's do- daughter who's dying, it's an, it's his only child. And uh, earlier on, remember the the widow of Nain, who um, Jesus is coming into town and the coffin is coming out. Each time Luke makes the point of saying, which the other gospel writers don't, that it's an only child. In other words, it's a desperate situation that Jesus intervenes in. It's a situation that. Um, if nothing is done, it's, it is a real tragedy because in a, uh, in a culture and in a world without social security, your family is everything and your children are everything. Uh, you raise your children and your hope and expectation is that your children will look after you in your old age. So to lose an only child is really serious. And Luke always makes a point when it's an only ch- child of pointing that out. So this is a serious situation. And suddenly the disciples find themselves caught up in this, you know, in this argument. And one of the questions that it, it raises is, well, how do we kind of hold these two things together? How do we hold these two things in tension that we see Jesus in all his divine glory? Remember, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So when we see Jesus, we see God. We see him in all his divine glory, his divine authority. And yet... Here's a situation where evil seems to have the upper hand and this poor child's life is being ruined by evil. How do we hold those two things together? 
It's a question that is being asked all the time. I see very often, on, particularly on Facebook posts at the moment, sometimes in response to my turn the page stuff, and sometimes they just kind of pop up, of people saying, in the, the context of coronavirus and everything that's going on at the moment, how can your God watch people die? I've seen that post or comment lots of times over the last few months. How can your God, how great is your God when he just sits by and he doesn't do anything about the mess that we're seeing in our world? He doesn't seem to be doing anything about coronavirus. So your God isn't up to much. It's a relevant question. It's a question people are asking. So how do we hold together seeing Jesus in all his glory and yet... Our world is messy and there is evil and there is injustice and there's all this stuff going on. How do we kind of square that circle? Is that an expression, square the circle? How do you square a circle? Sorry, it just suddenly came to me. It seems a ridiculous thing to say. But anyway, how do you kind of hold those two things in tension? We have to kind of have an answer. How, why, why, you know, why? I was thinking... um, you know, sometimes you buy a you buy a new appliance, and, the, and whatever the appliance is, it comes with a guarantee. You know, it's guaranteed. And when you read the, the terms and conditions of the guarantee, often it will say in those terms and conditions, it will say, this guarantee will be invalid if you do not use the appliance for the purpose for which it was intended. So if you buy yourself a hairdryer, which I haven't done for a very long time, but if you buy yourself a hairdryer and then start banging nails into the wool with it and it breaks, your guarantee is invalid. You can't contact the manufacturer and say, your appliance is rubbish, it's broken, because it won't bang nails into the wall. The the manufacturer will say, well, that's not the purpose for which it was intended, not going to be guaranteed. But that's what we do in our world. We look at the mess that our world is in, and then we turn to God and we say, it's all your fault, you made a rubbish thing. But now, actually, if you use the appliance for a purpose which it's not intended, you can't go and blame the manufacturer. But that's what we do. God has created us. He's created our world and he's created us for relationship and he's given us life. And he has a way in which that life is supposed to be used. That's what the Bible is all about. Telling us, teaching us, revealing to us how life is supposed to be lived. Well, if we take that life... And then we reject God and we ignore God and we just do our own thing with it. Well, it's like taking a hairdryer and banging nails in with it. We shouldn't be surprised that it gets broken and it gets messy. And so the question is, when we look at this thing of, well, well here's Jesus in all his glory and here's a, you know, here's a child oppressed by evil. How do we hold these two things together? Do we look at the mess and we look at the evil and the injustice and conclude that... Well, there can't be a God, and there certainly can't be a God of love. Or, to actually flip it on its head and say, well, actually, the reason that things look so messy is because God does love us. It's kind of counterintuitive, but actually it's true. Because if God didn't love us, and if he didn't love the world, then how much simpler would it be just to... Just to, you know, to wipe it away. Wipe the slate clean and start again. How much simpler would that be? Well, God has promised. He promised after the flood that he would never do that. He promised after the flood he would never do that. But he promised instead that he would come to seek us, to constantly invite us back to himself. The fact that we live with a messy world 
is actually a sign of God's love because it means God is long-suffering and he's patient and he puts up with our rebellion and he puts up with our rejection of him and he puts up with the fact that we take this beautiful gift of life that he's given to us and then we make a mess of it and we're greedy and we're selfish and we do our own thing without reference to him and we end up in a world that looks like it does and God in his patience says well I'm not going to bring judgment yet because I love you I love you so much that I'm going to wait and I'm going to be patient with you and even though it breaks my heart to watch the mess that you've got yourselves into, I'm going to wait and I'm going to woo you and I'm going to constantly reach out and I'm going to constantly give you chance after chance after chance to come back. In the New Testament it says that the reason that God allows all of this suffering to go on for so long and why he doesn't step in now and wrap it all up now is because... He wants everyone, every one of us to have that opportunity to respond and to come back into relationship with him. So that's how we can hold together the tension between seeing Jesus in all his divine glory, all powerful, almighty. And yet we live with the mess that we do. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It means the complete reverse. And it's really hard to get your head around that because we're... So often what we do is we're confronted with the mess and then we draw conclusions about God. And actually what we have to do is look at Jesus and understand the character of God and then draw conclusions about the mess. So uh, they come down the mountain, they find this argument going on. And uh, 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 verse four, it says, I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So Luke kind of, he raises this question and then he just leaves it hanging and he never answers it. Because it's a big question. Hang on a minute. Why couldn't the disciples drive out the demon? Because if you go back to the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus has called the 12 together and sent them out with power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. Drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And that's what they've gone and done. Uh, um, at verse 6 of chapter 9, they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So, like I was saying at the start of the service, they did what Jesus did. They said the kind of things that Jesus said. They gave the message that Jesus was giving and then they did the things that Jesus did. They cast out demons and they healed the sick. So they've done it already. They've done this stuff already. So hang on a minute. Why suddenly now they can't? Something has, something's happened, something has gone wrong. And we need to kind of think about it because if we're called to do the same thing that they did, to, to, to preach the message that, preachers, that Jesus preached and to do the things that Jesus did, to demonstrate signs of the kingdom, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, well, we need to understand, well, can we make the same mistake that the disciples made here? What has, what has happened? And as I say, Luke just, he leaves it kind of hanging. But we're not... Um, uh, we do have the answer because, as some of you will know, uh, when Matthew and Luke write their Gospels, they have a copy of Mark in front of them. Because when you read the Gospels together, some of Matthew and Luke is word for word just lifted from, um, uh, from Mark's Gospel. Uh, they would have been done for plagiarism uh, at university. 
But they're, they're kind of happy with it, so they just kind of copy out. And some bits, they lift from Mark, and then they, because Mark's a bit long-winded sometimes, they edit it, and they edit it down, and they, they leave bits out. And that's exactly what has happened here. So Luke raises the question, he just says, I begged your disciples to write, but they couldn't. In Luke's, in this passage, we never find out why they couldn't, but Mark and Matthew tell us why they couldn't. So let me just flip to um, uh, Mark chapter 9. Uh, after it's um, after Jesus has sorted it out and Jesus is alone with them, uh, uh, he's on their own together. We read this, um, chapter nine, verse chapter nine, verse twenty-eight. That's it. Yes. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, "Why couldn't we drive it out?" They're as puzzled as everybody else. Why couldn't we do it? He replied, "This kind can come out only by prayer." And there's a footnote, and fasting. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. If we look at Matthew's version, in Matthew chapter 17, uh, they meet with Jesus and they ask the same question. Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the reason the disciples haven't been able to cast out this demon is because Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting and by faith. And you've neglected all three. So let's just um, unpack that. Uh, a little bit, because I say it's relevant for us as followers of Jesus who are seeking to live lives that look like Christ, that look like Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting? I think it's simply this: you can only um, the uh, you can only do the works of God with God. You can't do the works of God apart from God. One of the things that the gospel tells us so clearly is that we are invited into relationship with Jesus. We're invited to do things in his name. We're invited to do things in his name. When we pray, as we've prayed this morning, uh, very often when we do, we end our prayer and we say, in Jesus' name. What, what does that mean when we say, in Jesus' name? Is that just some kind of you know, magic formula that we stick on the end of something we've said that will make it happen. It's got some divine slot machine and the way that you pull the handle to get the, to win the prize is you just stick in Jesus' name on the end of it. Well, no, in, in a biblical understanding, if you do something in somebody's name, their name is not just a title, it is a description of their, of their character, of, of who they are. It's kind of everything about them. And so when Jesus says we should ask for things in his name, it means, well, in accordance with his will. As Christians, our goal is that we should be Christ-like. We should become more and more Christ-like, more and more like him, so that we, we think like him. And we speak like him and we conduct ourselves like him and we act like him. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by by um, building our relationship with him. And how do we build our relationship with him? Well, through prayer and fasting, amongst many other things, including worship and Bible reading. Also, 
but it's in prayer and fasting that our relationship with God is strengthened. And it's in prayer and fasting that we learn to hear his voice and be dependent upon him. I think perhaps what the disciples had done is, there's, I don't know, there's maybe just a little bit of distance. They kind of, maybe they got into the, th- into the headspace of thinking, well, oh wow, we can, we can do this. We can do this. And actually they couldn't. But Jesus could do it. I've, I know I've told this story before, and, um, uh, but I've, um, uh, I remember the, the first time that I went to Colombia some years ago with my friend Paul Ben. And that first evening when I arrived after you know, 24 hours of travelling, I was completely exhausted and I ended up going straight into a service. And I'm standing at the front of this service, literally 15 minutes after I arrived. There are four of us on the platform and uh, people were invited to come forward for prayer for healing. And um, uh, as I've said many times in Colombia, there's a very different... It's very easy to pray for people for healing in Colombia because there's just a very different spiritual atmosphere. They haven't got the, the disbelief and the scepticism that has infected us in the West. There's a, they're very open uh, in South America and just, well, yeah, we expect that God will come and do something. So with the four of us on the platform, there's a queue of people in front of each of us, of people waiting to come for prayer for healing. And I remember thinking two things as I stood there. The first thing I thought was, I'm absolutely exhausted. I've got nothing to give. All I want to do is go to the apartment and have dinner and go to bed. I've, I've literally got nothing, nothing to give here. These people have come with expectation. And what have I got? And I thought, I've got nothing. And then the second thought I had was, well, that doesn't matter. Because I can't do anything. But Jesus can. And Jesus can do everything. And so that night and, and many other evenings in Colombia, I saw lots of people healed. I didn't heal anybody. Jesus heals because that's what he does. I think that's what Jesus means when he says to the disciples in Matthew's gospel, uh, when they say, why couldn't we drive it as? He says, you have so little faith. See, the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of trust. It's a life of trusting in Jesus and trusting Jesus for what he can do. And how do we become more confident in that? How do we learn to trust Jesus? Well, it's by growing our relationship with him. And how do we grow our relationship with him? Through prayer and fasting. And prayer is not just about um, giving God our requests. Prayer is about relationship. It's about sitting and listening and waiting on him. When was the last time you sat down to pray and you didn't say anything? either quietly or aloud, but actually you just sat in the Lord's presence and you said, Lord, I want to hear your voice. I think most of us are rubbish at it. I'm rubbish at it. It's a real discipline for me to sit down and be quiet and just wait. But God loves to speak to us. He loves us to hear his voice. Uh, In the last few years, I've discovered the discipline of fasting, and I I commend it to you. I think it's a a discipline that we've lost so much. Um, Some years ago, I used to fast occasionally, and um, I would get so grumpy. People would tell me to stop fasting, because I just became such, (laughs) I get so hangry and become such a horrible person. They say, well, you just have something to eat. You're horrible. But in the last few years, I've kind of got back into, back into the discipline of, of fasting. And, and 
I can honestly say that when I fast, I've, I feel more spiritually alive. Because it's one of those things that draws us closer to the Lord. It's when you, when you sacrifice something, when you deny yourself something and use that as a, it's just a kind of prompt to go deeper with the Lord. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. So, um, uh, I, I fast once a week. So from, uh, after dinner one evening to dinner the next evening, I just fast for 24 hours and I use that time, uh, and uh, try and intentionally spend more time just, Waiting on the Lord. But it's as we, as we grow closer to Jesus, as we become more Christ-like in character, that we then live out of the power and authority that he gives to us. And I think there's something of that going on here. And that's why the disciples find themselves suddenly struggling. It's about relationship. And it's about his life in us flowing out of us. Remember Jesus said that his life would be like a spring of water flowing from us. So it becomes easy. When we abide in him, his life becomes easy. So um, uh, Luke, as I say, leaves the question hanging in the air. We have to go to Mark and Matthew to find the answer. It's about prayer and fasting and it's about faith. It's about trusting in who he is, that nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for him. So then um, Jesus cast out the demon. Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Again, we saw it earlier in Luke's gospel. Jesus does something and the credit is given to God. People see that when Jesus does something, it's actually God who is at work. It's a signpost to Jesus's divine nature. So again, it's this, it's this moment of, of just kind of celebration and a victory for the kingdom of God. Jesus has stepped in to this impossible situation and now everything is okay. And people are glorying in the glory of God and in the glory of Jesus. And in that moment, once again, Jesus speaks and says, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the, into the hands of men. Uh, Mark has a little more um, detail. He says, um, uh, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Uh, Matthew keeps that in us. Um, in as well uh, they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life and uh, once again the disciples don't really understand uh, Luke says uh, uh, they didn't grasp it it was hidden from them they were afraid to ask him about it uh, Mark in Mark's gospel they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it uh, Matthew says they are filled with grief it's just a reminder once again that Jesus is on a path that is going to involve suffering and death. Just a reminder to us that there are moments when we see, we see the glory of God. We see his kingdom break in in the most, most spectacular ways. But actually in this life, it's a path of suffering. It's a path so often of rejection. But ultimately it's a path that leads to victory. Remember 
the conversation that Moses and Elijah have with Jesus. They talk to him about his departure. They talk to him about his exodus. In this life, there will be mess. In this life, there will be suffering. In this life, we will see signs of God's kingdom. We'll see demons being kicked out. We'll see people being healed. We'll see people being raised from the dead. But it will be messy. But in Jesus, we have confidence in our exodus, our deliverance from slavery to sin to freedom, the freedom of eternal life. And again, Jesus is just reminding his disciples, um, uh, don't lose sight of where we're going. Yes, we're going to have these glorious moments, but don't lose sight of the fact I'm on my way to Jerusalem and I'm on my way to die, to die for you, to die in your place, to die, to open a door to eternal life. So this morning, let us be encouraged that even though we live in a world that is such a mess, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. It means the reverse. It means that God does love us and is patient with us. Let's be encouraged to draw ever closer to him. If, we, if you're a follower of Jesus, just be encouraged to keep Pressing in to your relationship with Jesus so that you might become more like him and do the things that he does. Because it's when we do the things that Jesus did that people are provoked to ask questions about Jesus and about the kingdom of God. And let's not be discouraged when life is difficult. Let's not be discouraged when times are hard. That's the reality of the life that we live in this world. But we stand on a firm foundation of the resurrection. The resurrection, that means there's a certain victory that we share in. So let's take a few moments of quiet, uh, as we always do after we've read and reflected on the word of God. And in these moments, allow, welcome the Holy Spirit to, uh, to speak to us. Uh, maybe there's a challenge that we need to receive this morning. Uh, maybe there's an encouragement uh, that we need to hear. Maybe we need to respond to God's love and invite him into our lives. Come Holy Spirit, have your way with us this morning. Move in us even as we wait on you, Holy Spirit. Work in us, we receive you, we welcome you.